Hello and welcome to the Life Beyond Limits podcast. I'm your host, Emma Gibbs-Ung. Each show I'll be using a combination of interviews with incredibly inspiring people from around the world who have achieved greatness, overcome adversity and never given up, as well as solo episodes from me sharing my own journey as a leading mindset trauma coach, helping to inspire, support and guide you to create a growth mindset so you can achieve success in all areas of your life. So are you ready to bring mindset to life and feel inspired? Let's go. Hello and welcome back to the Life Beyond Limits podcast. This week I'm joined by Re- Rebecca Oliyinka, who is a social worker with a huge passion for writing on so many levels and has featured in books and numerous articles. Writing has been her comfort for many years and has helped her to navigate through toxic relationships and find confidence in herself again. Rebecca was fostered as a baby until the age of nine and a half, which had a huge impact on her identity growing up. Today, Rebecca is sharing with us how she's used writing to help manage her self-doubt and gain clarity and confidence in her identity. So welcome, Rebecca. It's lovely to have you on the show. Thank you. It's lovely to be on the show. How are you? I'm well, thank you. How are you? Yes, I'm good. I'm good. I'm excited um, for our chat. I can certainly relate to the comfort part with writing. Um, I think me and writing have been friends on and off for a lot of years. And I know when I was right in the thick of my, like my recovery and my journey, I, I sought a lot of comfort in writing. Um, and I think it is incredibly powerful on so many levels. Um, and can help so many people, which I know is the kind of writing that you do. So I'd love to find out a bit more about that as we continue to chat. But it would be really great to just um, start by just hearing what life was like for Rebecca, um, what life was like in foster care and how that laid the foundations for the life that you now lead today. Okay. Yeah, wow. Do you know what? That's something I do think about a lot of the time. Um, Over the years, more so now than I did before. Yeah. So when I grew up in, so grew up in foster care was, um, it was a great time. Um, it was, it was great because I had a really great foster mum. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I felt loved by her and I loved her. Mm-hmm. However, it was, it was difficult because I was fostered in a small, like rural, like seaside town. I'm not far from London Mm -hmm. and I was the only black um, child in my school actually that's not true I was well yeah I was the only black child in my school but there was a mixed race child who was in my school as well Mm -hmm. Um, but there was a lot of there was a lot of difficulty because it was in the 80s Mm -hmm. Um, and um, yeah I did get into it with the kids at school quite a lot quite more often than I than I would like um but as an intrigue or as a a nastiness um I was probably I was reacting to how they were so there was Mm. times when so I had friends Mm. and that was fine but then I had times when like older kids if we're playing games with the older kids you know just a few years older they would just you know if I won a game or anything like that, then they'd start calling me names and then I would just obviously retaliate. Mm. Um, so it was never really a great dynamic, I suppose, in that sense. And mm. you never really knew when the next thing was going to happen. 
and that just became my norm mm-hmm. really um but my foster mom was really she was so like you know she wasn't having any of that she would just be like you know don't let them upset you and you know call them this call them that she was the one goading me to do that yeah <laughs> so yeah she wasn't she wasn't having any of that um so I was really I was so even though I had I experienced quite a lot of racism on the on the other side you know I did experience you know a good time when I when I lived with my foster mum you know I felt like I had a childhood I was free there wasn't any kind of I don't know I didn't feel like any kind of worry mm-hmm. or anything like that it was quite I was carefree basically like I suppose a child it would be good for a child to be um and just enjoy the childhood so I was on my bike quite a lot um I had a couple of we had a couple of dogs we had a cat um so it was it was really lovely it was really good um but I suppose what I struggled with one of the things I struggled with is my own was definitely my own identity yeah because when I went back to live with my mum it was very different because my mum was Nigerian um, she grew up in Nigeria she came over here and she came to London in the UK um, I think she came well way before I was born yeah. <laughs> but it might have been the 70s or something I can't exactly I don't know the exact date mm. um, and she I suppose she was very she she wasn't moved in the sense that even if she was in a different country she still had all her Nigerian culture, Nigerian values, everything like that, which is, you know, not a problem. She, she should have that. It's just raising a child, I suppose, within in another country, but mm. trying to do it within your culture. And it, I think there was a lot of difficulties within that. Um, so I never really sometimes understood whether I was, my identity was um, uh, Black British, sometimes Black Nigerian British. <laughs> black Nigerian and it's so funny because I live in London now and you meet new people and the one of the first things they ask you is where you're from Mm. and it's so interesting because I never really understand that question now Mm. I know people say it because they want to know but it's still I always never really understand that question because it's more to the fact that it's like one of the first things people say to you Mm. I'm just like oh we're all kind of citizens of the world um take away things like you know because if you look at it really deeply you could see that's a microaggression which Mm. are like maybe sometimes people don't know what microaggressions are but they're kind of like small um everyday insults that uh that seek to fucking validate the Mm. person that you're speaking to and it's done kind of subconsciously but it's kind of tied with racism okay as well there is like um there is a book by Dr. Win Van Soon, who's is the I think that's how he's I say his name, but it's called, called Microaggressions. And this is a really good book if anyone wants to know more about the more about the ins and outs of yeah. it. But that's as much as I'll say on, <laughs> on that. Um, but when people ask me where I'm from, I'm I'm always interested because it's more to do with because of the way I look. So I look um obviously I'm black. So probably people immediately think, you know, I'm not from the UK. I wasn't born in the UK. Mm. And even just saying I'm a Londoner, it's just a bit like, oh, okay. They're like, okay. But it's just, it's just interesting where people have got this desire to know 
and not actually know who you are as a person like mm. nobody asks you, <laughs> you who you're, what is your personality type or mm. what's your even just things like what's your favorite color or anything like that it's just interesting to me that people ask you where you're from and because of my own I suppose grapples with my own identity and finding out who I or thinking about who I am as well as a person that is always an interesting uh, conversation starter for me. Mm. Do you know that's so interesting because I mean I've never really thought of it that way hearing you say it I can understand it but I I am someone that asks everybody what pretty much most people who and even living where I live like I'll just ask you know well where where do you live where are you from but I don't ever mean it in other than where do you live where do you where are you from um but I've never thought about how and this is the thing isn't it is that quite often a lot of our doubts are a result of people making comments without realizing Mm. the impact it has on people like Mm. a flippant comment and stuff like that without the awareness that that actually can be interpreted Mm. in a different way um and that you know it it is an eye-opener and again it's like considering people um and and respecting people I suppose mm. just being a bit more aware of of what the types of things that we say and the, and the impact that that has on on yeah. the people who are receiving the question I suppose yeah I think it's I mean I don't necessarily always think it's done like you said you know people yeah. are just curious and they just want to know um however it's sometimes I, I do always wonder whether it's to, you know to do with somebody's got a different accent or it's different mm. then they ask that question whereas somebody who is was seen as white British possibly wouldn't be asked that question mm. but I don't know so I, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say yeah. that never happens do you know what I mean well, I, I always ask white people where they're from as well <laughs> Yeah, you know, it's just every call that I've had with everyone because I've had so many different time zones I'm like where are you from again and yeah. it's just you know without yeah. even thinking like yeah kind of thing. It, it's it's and very it's, yeah and it's not like a bad thing I think for a while I did really get really annoyed about that question mm. and now I'm just a bit more like okay you know I'd like to talk about something else sometimes but um yeah it's you know it's something that people want to know people are you know seem to be very curious as a piece of driver but I suppose more for me it's more like I said about my um, identity and yeah, I was gonna say, do you I think it, it was a sensitive topic because it was triggering something in you where you were like well I don't know if I'm black British or black Nigerian Nigerian like you were saying and and so while you were trying to figure it out yourself there was a sensitivity to it that if then someone asked where you were from you automatically went back to that well I'm not sure yeah. I haven't quite figured it out whereas they were probably like what part of London are you from um but because it was at the forefront of your mind it then yeah. became a, a thing potentially yeah it did it really did and it's and it's interesting because I've lived in other places so I've lived in Birmingham and Bristol and yeah. I got asked very different questions from mm. where you're from that's what I got asked in London and even what you said, you captured it so well <laughs> with my like capsulating my experience of how I felt, and possibly there were triggers there. Mm. Um, I have felt that though, even if I've said to people I'm from London, it's like, no, but where are you from? Like, and then I'm like, well, what do you mean? Because I've tried mm. to, I've told you. I remember being on a date once, it's really funny. And I told the guy I literally was born in Homerton Hospital. 
Oh, really? I was in Palmerston Hospital in Hackney. <laughs> so funny. And he literally asked me, literally after that, he said, where are you from? And I said, no, I can't, I can't, I can't. I don't know what else to say to you. <laughs> like, it was quite funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's amazing. I mean, so obviously having experienced some racism in your younger years, which I'm so anti all of that and, and you know, know the impact that that has and I think you know it's it's been brought to everyone's attention in recent years but there's still so much mm. more that we can do and hopefully you know having this conversation today will really help people understand the impacts and build awareness but obviously going going to a school where um, you are experiencing racism and then moving back uh, to live with your mum in a totally different environment how did that then sort of impact? I mean, I know we've just been speaking about with this whole confusion of um, sort of your own identity, but what other layers were there that were coming through for you? Not necessarily then, but as you were growing up where perhaps there was that still mixed feeling of your true identity. Yeah, I think, oh gosh, there was so much. So particularly, so one of the things that I found even more, um, difficult was my, so my 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 foster mum was white mm. I don't know if I mentioned that but I mentioned mm. it now and she always said I was brown not black because mm. she didn't like she thought she actually didn't she did not like but she always thought that black was quite um saying black was offensive mm. so she always told me I was brown not black then I moved when I moved to live with my mum and I went to primary school there and I went to one it was, it was sort of a rough primary school. It wasn't like, it was very different from my primary school, even though I had, you know, um, interactions, maybe some sort of interactions or scrapes with the kids and stuff. It was not, it wasn't a rough school I went to before. But when I moved to London, I went to one and it was quite, I think, deprived areas, et cetera. Um, and I remember we were playing this game and it was so interesting because... <laughs> Like we had to go around the circle and say, oh, what? so what we had to say what colour we were and we had to say what star sign we were. It was very random. But anyway, mm. I, when it got to me, I said I was, I, I was a Scorpio because I was born in October. So it's my birthday month. So yeah, cool. I'm and um, oh, are you? Oh, cool. I'm Scorpio. Yay, yay, Scorpio. <laughs> and I said, I saw, I went round and I said I was Scorpio. And then I said I was brown. Oh my gosh. It was like I had said that I was an alien from another country. Oh, wow. It really? was the amount of abuse I got. I'd never seen anything. Like, I was just a bitch. I was quite shocked because I didn't know. I had like, there was older kids there and stuff. And they were saying, don't you know you're black? You're not brown. Blah, 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 blah. And all these things. Or oh, don't you know? Aren't you, are you stupid? Da, da, da. It went, it was like, I felt like quite, it was like quite traumatic within, mm. within that, just that setting. So I remember it so clearly even now. And so that's where I, and then I just got really confused even more. I really got confused. And then I started saying, okay, I'm black because now everyone's saying I'm black so I'm black so back on your confidence and stuff because I mean again at that age and being told one thing for the first nine years and then moving and innocently saying you know that that you're brown to then have that barrage of well abuse or reaction negative reaction whatever you want to call it to then process and digest that and then have to reshape your identity again 
Mm. What was that then doing for your confidence? Oh, my confidence was was pretty bad. Mm. It was pretty, it was, it was, it was, it was, I don't even know if it was there. I think because because I left my um first the way I left my first mum, there was a lot of trauma there. Mm. Um and she died not long after I left her. Um, so she died only about four or five months after after I left. So that was that was hard. That was really, really hard. So like the person who's like been the, the closest to you for so long, mm. um, then they they all of a sudden you you not only leave them, there's no way of going back because yeah. they've died. So it's it that was really hard. And then going to a new school, all of those things, and then trying to understand who you are within the midst of that. And then, and when I went back to my mum, it was quite, like I said, she was quite of a Nigerian culture. So she was, she, she would expect, I suppose, me to act like I was in Nigeria. And there were certain things I would be doing that, you know, more for myself Mm. um, than um, like my foster mum did in that way. You know, I felt like I was thrust into a lot of independency very quickly and very early on. So I kind of had to just get with get on board with it. And then my mum got ill. So there was I had an identity as a young carer as well. So I took on that. So there was quite a lot of things. Um, and still trying to find out who I was and not being able to speak about my fostering experience with my mum. Like my mum just didn't want to know. And I think there was a lot of shame and guilt there for a long time. Um from her. I mean, she would never have said that to me. She's passed now as well. Um, but yeah, I think there was definitely because she had said to me that she didn't want, you know, her children to have been fostered. She wouldn't have wanted that. But circumstances were not like kind of were out of her control. Mm. And I understand that as I get older, as I've gotten older, I understand that she was in a very difficult position. So she was, you know, she was she was in an abusive relationship herself. Um, with my father and then she you know she was in a new country she she wasn't able to look after her children you know all that kind of stuff and she had no like family and stuff around that's quite a lot for someone and in the time that she came it was different there wasn't as much support and help I'm not sure how much support there is now with all the all the benefits being cut um, in the UK um, but I think but when she was then at now, I, sorry. Sorry. Did you have much interaction with her when you were in foster care? Did you? A bit, but not a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was kind of like more hol- like birthdays mm. and maybe holidays, but not like it wasn't like um. Oh, what's the word? She was there, but she wasn't there. If that makes sense, like I always knew mm. that she was my birth mum, but I didn't know like her in the same way that obviously as my as my foster mum so you're getting to know yourself and getting to know your mum at the same time yeah yeah definitely and I'm not sure if if I really ever got to know my mum um to be honest because there were so many things in the way Mm. um and for a long time I was really resentful towards my mum like really it was it was pretty awful and that's why I started writing because 
I just had so much going on inside. I just wanted to get it all out. Mm. Um, yeah, I just felt like it was too much to have inside, to hold inside. So I just thought if I could just start right, it just pulled out. It just never really even was something that I felt I not like I didn't have a choice, but in a way it just had to come out yeah. because I was just going to explode all the time if I didn't capture you know mm. how I was feeling and I was very what's the words um I don't really like the word sensitive but I think it's I was just more like really in touch with my feelings because of everything that happened I think maybe that's what shaped me I, I don't know mm. um it's difficult to say isn't it but I suppose we are a product of our environment so um I I believe so it, you know if I'd raised in a different environment then yeah it, things would be different in that way so how old when you first started writing? I was about 13. Yeah. I was 13. And um, it was quite interesting because when you talk about identity as well, so when I first came back to live with my mum, I was, I had an informal arrangement with um, a family friend where I was more, I stayed at their house a lot more with their children right. than I did with my mum for the first maybe year and a half wow so then that another layer to it as well so yeah so all of that trying to figure out who you are within that was very uh, it was very it was very confusing what patterns were starting to come through with you um like behavioral patterns and thought patterns as you were kind of navigating through all of this and trying to make sense of it and you said you know you have some resentment towards your mum was anger starting to come through oh yeah there was so much anger yeah there was so much how, anger how was that manifesting or with people or like yourself or and then your writing became your escapism or yeah I mean it was with people like with my family because like my siblings are quite a lot older than me mm. so my oldest brother is nearly 17 years old well nearly 20 years older than me because he's about 17 years older than me Mm. and um then my other brother is oh, 12 years older and then my sister is seven years older so they were never really constant like when I was at home you, you might get one who came back from uni and then the other one and it was all very a bit of a mishmash um so they only certain, saw certain parts of me and they probably saw the sullen moody teenager or the um I wouldn't say aggressive but um slightly well <laughs> quite um quite sullen um quite um curt teenager quite rude quite not um what's the word not easy to get along with but I think and then with my mum it was just we were kind of always at loggerheads mm. quite a lot of the time we just never really were able to have that kind of bond that's how I feel, I mm. suppose. Um, I, I didn't know what, what she felt at the time. Um, I think it was difficult for her. Um, she didn't really know what to do. And she was very, she was, she used, so her, I think her escapism was church because she was very, um, I wouldn't say religious, but she had like quite a strong Christian faith mm. where she went to church a lot a lot a lot and then that was part of also then added to my identity because 
I was I felt dragged to church quite a lot and the church wasn't it was like a Nigerian um church where it was it was it was so well I don't think there was any other African cultures I think it was just Nigerian Mm -hmm. and it was done in a way that where it went on for so long it was like a Pentecostal I think church you would say it was now and but it went on for so long like you could be at church from 11 o'clock till five o'clock and even at five o'clock, it may not end because when we would be talking to people, you might not get back until half six. So you'd be out. And then there was prayer meetings before church as well. And then there was prayer meetings in the week. <laughs> and then there was prayer. There was, a, there was a time when there was prayer meetings on a Friday night. That got dragged to it. It wasn't just Friday, like nine to 12. It was like probably 11 o'clock in the night or like, four o'clock in the morning oh wow yeah and it was very like it just put the fear of fear of god in you literally like because the pastor would always preach like hellfire for you and all these kinds of hell and fire and brimstone it was very um it felt very scary like god felt very scary Mm. Mm. and but i feel like that was my mom's coping mechanism whereas mine was writing she had that yeah yeah so obviously you're going through all of that and you've started your writing um and I know that you moved away when you were 18 was writing your only solace or at that point had you started to explore your identity were you starting to feel more comfortable with it was there any healing that you were going through that was helping you to unravel you um healing that was going through um maybe never (laughs) I don't feel like I was going for I I feel like it was probably the I wouldn't say it was the worst time of my life but it was definitely one of the most difficult times Mm. um being a being a teenager I think being a teenager is not easy anyway um but I feel like yeah there wasn't I knew that if I left home I thought everything would be better I just thought if I clung on to that idea, then everything would be fine and I'd get the hell out of it. <laughs> was it? You left? Um, it was one of those things where I realized where I realized that you can run away from a situation, but you always bring yourself with you. So if you haven't dealt with things within yourself, then it will always follow you. It will, it will always follow you. So I I would say I would always recommend people not to yeah. like as much as possible. Like sometimes, I mean, I don't always feel that you can heal an environment that hurt you. Mm. But at the same time, if you're not taking steps to look after yourself um, and really deal with the root cause of the issue, then it will keep coming back. So you could go to anywhere in the world. And because you're there yourself, you're taking yourself there it's still something's still going to be there yeah I think you know what you said there sometimes taking yourself out of that intense environment does help but I mean I I was speaking to someone yesterday about it and you know you've just backed it up again and said it is that the reality is so many people try and escape whether that's physically or through alcohol or drugs or you know some addiction to numb the pain or to keep running hoping that it won't catch up with them Um, But the reality is you're always going to have to face the baggage at some point. And some people can like 
run away for 50 odd years mm. and just not quite face it, but then eventually are forced to face it. When did mm. you feel confident enough to start facing it? Or when did you recognize that, that you needed to face it in order to make changes? Um, that's an interesting question. It was always kind of there, but I just didn't know how to deal with it. And I suppose, when did I recognize it? I think there were quite low points in my life. One of them, when I was at university and I drank, like I was living with friends and they had no idea about my background or anything like that. And I drank half, I think it was half a bottle of tequila. Um, and I threw up in my bed. <laughs> it was one of my low, really one of my low points. So I kind of knew that there was something that needed to be addressed. Um, and I did dabble with alcohol quite a bit, but I was um, somebody who's quite a lightweight, so which means I can't really drink a lot without getting really kind of mashed. So, so it, was, it could never be for me, if that makes sense. Um, and I and I'm thankful for that that I don't I can't hold it because I probably would have turned to alcohol a lot to numb. Mm. I did other things which which would numb the pain, like shopping. You know those times when I was addicted to like I don't know tarot readings because I thought if I knew the future, then I would know that there's a hope that things will be better and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, you were already you were searching. You just... I was definitely searching, but I just was so like didn't know what was going on at all I didn't know how and you know I was in therapy for quite a long time so I do counseling on and off um but it never really felt like it got to you know anything it just kind of was there and things would improve and then things would go back and it's just like up and down up and down but with the same issues regurgitating all the time mm. so I think particularly when I started as a um qualified as so when I started my social work course that really helped because we talked about a lot of reflection. There were some more tools. There was like, I remember being one of the, um, my tutor groups and it was the first year. And there was a book called Power and Empowerment by Neil Thompson. And it was like a go-to book for social workers. And I was arguing with my, with my, um, with my tutor that I just didn't feel like social, like we had power. And I think it was more to do with my own I, identity around power. And I didn't feel like I had power. So I just felt like, you know, how could I do this in my role as well? Like, how could I, you know, this thing's expected of me, but I don't expect, I don't feel like I have power. Mm. And in some ways that was, that was true because within the social work role, there were certain limits and there's certain things that you can do and there's certain things you can't do. But there is, I suppose, a responsibility there and there is a professional like code of conduct and there is some sort of there is some sort of power within that role as well with some of the decisions we make or we help other people to make, I should say, because it's always as much as possible want to be a partnership role. Mm -hmm. So that started to help me to um, to really think about more things and look at other avenues as well of support um and look at how I you know even just the thought of being a social worker wasn't something I even wanted because I had social workers when I was little and 
I didn't feel like they helped at all. So I had this negative connotation towards them. What made you what made you go down that route then? I really wanted to help people. And I suppose I felt like if I helped people, then I wouldn't feel so bad about myself. I, I think I would feel like I'm I'm doing something. I'm I'm, you know, contributing to something bigger than myself. Yeah. So I felt like if I was um yeah if I was taking on this role and I and it also scared me a bit because I was like oh this feels like massive do you know what I mean and it was one of my friends when I lived in Birmingham she was a social worker she was planning on being a social worker and she was doing the studying and she was the one talking to me about it and I thought oh this is so interesting Mm. you know and I just thought you know why not try it and see yeah yeah um healing others rather than healing yourself yeah I think I did I felt like that I just thought but I just didn't know I think it was more that I didn't know how to heal myself Mm. and maybe I had this illusion that someone else would come and heal me Mm. and save me and that's all I wanted I just wanted someone else to do it I really didn't want to do the work um and I didn't know how to do the work yeah Um, I think that's a common thing is a lot of people just want this fairy godmother to come along and go right, let me help you and I'll make it all better. Um, and we can spend our lives searching for that because we're too well, scared of yeah. tired and carrying around all that baggage is hard work. Um, yeah. So not really knowing how to unpack that baggage and where to start and all of that sort of stuff can feel just too much. And so it's like mm. someone just come along and do it all for me. But the reality is, no they can't like people can help you and be a part of your healing journey and I would strongly strongly recommend to never do it on your own and to always have someone there to help and support you um but it's got to come from within when did you start to realize that there was no fairy godmother and that the the work had to come from you and what were the first few steps you took to break that cycle Oh gosh. I mean, definitely counseling. I was a massive part of it. Um, definitely um, more asking myself different types of questions. I suppose a lot of the time I, I was I'm I'm a recovering self-critic, so which I'm sure a lot of people can relate to. And I say recovering because it still comes and it's a way of having to deal with that. I mean, that didn't happen until much later that I even recognised that I was a critical myself. Mm. Um, but I think the first steps of my journey was more counselling and more making a decision not to um, engage in certain behaviours that weren't helpful for me. Because I think, it, and it's a decision every day. So um, something I didn't share and something I don't always share is that I when I was young, when I was in my teenage years, particularly, I, I was, I did self-harm a lot. And I was addicted to that. That was an addiction for me because I just thought I just needed to do this. I needed to do this and to do this. And then it, I started, I kept doing it. Even after I left home, I kept doing it. It wasn't always as much, but I kept, I kept doing it. Actually it got worse for, for a period of time. And then it just kind of was a bit of a kill. And now I, I can say that I think the last time I did it was, was 2008, 2008. 
um so it was it was like and it's it's a choice I make every day it's not something I used to think okay I'll never do that again and as soon as I thought that it was it was not good because there's been times that I've been really tempted but and I didn't go to any kind of particular counseling for that I just made a decision not to do that Mm -hmm. because um I just didn't feel like that was serving me anymore it was just it, it was just a situation that I just felt like, oh, I had to do it to cope with everything. Whereas I just thought, you know, you can't, you know, it's not good for you. You're hurting yourself, like physically hurting yourself. It is really, you know, damaging for you. And, you know, hurt physically, hurt mentally. And so I just, you know, decide every day not to do it. And it's not always as present because it, it used to be really, really loud. And now it's like, much quieter and it's it's hardly ever there now but I've never made the mistake in saying okay I'll never ever do that it's like I choose not to do that so I'm choosing not to do that anymore and it's that word choice such a powerful word um that has the power for us to change our lives in a second like it comes from a choice and waking up every morning choosing yeah it's it's, morning choosing anyway don't we but it's yeah yeah, definitely is a choice every day, even though now I'm not as I don't feel like I have to make the choice because I've made the choice. Like I've been constantly making that choice. So I read something somewhere that said, you make the choice, you make the decision and deci- until the decision makes you. Oh, yeah. So I can't remember where that's from. But I did read that. You make the, you make the choice until the choice makes you. Yeah. So it's like you don't have to consciously make that choice because it's a habit. So now my so my habit, I had a habit of self-harm. And yeah. you know, that was cutting. And now my habit is not that because I chose not to do that anymore. Yeah, yeah. It would be even more difficult to do that now because I've got tattoos there. So I used so I had some tattoos done a couple of years ago to like cover it to in order to like um make it prettier because I still have scars. So I just thought. Let me do that. And now it'd be even harder because I know I've got tattoos there. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a solidified covenant <laughs> around not to doing that anymore. Put but... anchors in place to stop that. Sorry? Put a boundary and an anchor in place to stop. Definitely. 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 It had to be done. For me, I felt like, you know, because yeah. it just just had to be done and it's just a choice I've just yeah just will continue to make because you know the other the alternative of going back to there isn't it's just not no. it's just not something that I can do anymore yeah so I mean obviously making those choices going through counseling how quickly was it that you started to notice some shifts with you that that started to bring some form of light rather than darkness oh my gosh I would I'd love to say it was only a little space of time but it wasn't it was a long long time mm-hmm. and I think the more actually the more counseling I did personally the worse it got because I wasn't thinking like okay what type of counselor what I was just lucky enough to get it from uni or get it from the NHS or anything like that and every counselor is different every therapy is different so I was just doing a mishmash of various different things and then it was only I suppose things like um, doing some more meditation like exercise for me I'm really big on exercise I love exercise 
really helps me to move my body, looking at what's important for me, maybe do even doing more co- like having coaches, co- coaching spaces, mm. um, you know, thinking about more, getting more into, you know, what's important to me, how I want to live my life, um, who I want around me. You know, I've, you know, had to say goodbye to quite a lot of friendships and some of those things, friendships didn't, I didn't consciously say to them all, oh, you know, let's, let's end ways or anything like that. But um, they, they left for various reasons. And some of it was because I suppose all, you know, the, the relationship wasn't very good. It was toxic. Um, and I heard someone say, and someone said to me, like, you <laughs> Um, people don't leave you even if people leave you people don't leave um you you leave the person mm. it's kind of like a spiritual kind of I don't know energy like break mm. basically there um even if you're not the one um what's the word um orchestrating that end to that friendship um and because it's been little things all over like along the way it's just been really little and I feel like in the last year and a half with a, with a lot of my writing it's been that has been I would say when it's been published has been more of the the fact that I've been like okay never saw myself as a writer never wanted to because I thought no one I knew did this I don't really can tell people that I do this because people are going to be like what is she doing who does she think she is and some of those things were coming from me but be, being really allowing myself to be more self-expressed within myself, mm. um, feeling more free and not letting things that have been holding me back hold me back all the time as much as I've let them. But knowing that it's just it's stories that I've had from the past. Yeah. You know, even the stuff with my mum, it was really just hung on to me. And my relationship with my dad's, I mean, my dad's passed away. Mm. Um but I was able to have a conversation with him before he died. And I never thought he had words because I went to, <laughs> I went on this coaching program for like three and a half days. And at the end of it, I wanted to speak to my dad mm. and I had not spoken to him for 11 years. Mm. And he was in Nigeria and I just, it took me like two weeks to get in contact with him. And I basically said to him that I just don't want you to die thinking I hate you. And my dad was like, oh, I wouldn't, you would never, th- I would never think that because I love you and you love me. <laughs> my dad had that kind of way of thinking. And I was like, oh, I'm so glad because that's not the story I was telling myself. Mm. And, you know, we were able to have that conversation. And then three months unexpectedly, he did die. Mm. And I was just like, wow, that is that is like oh that's something I never thought I would do and that's another part of my healing journey that I've been able to let that go how I felt towards him as well has forgiveness been a huge part for you yes Mm. yeah forgiveness forgiving other people forgiving myself Mm. um it's something I still work on of course but it's a process anyway you know all of this we never you never do it once and it's fully gone and fixed it's it's just the first time's the hardest, let's be honest, because that's the most resistant. But the more that we can do it, the more we're just cleansing our energy, keeping ourselves like ca- as calm and as confident as possible and just dealing with the, the baggage and stuff as and when we need to. Yeah. And, you know, it, it is an ongoing thing. But I'd love to know a little bit more about 
what the forgiveness process was like for you? Um, well, you mean around my dad? In general, I mean, um, but well, how it impacted you and, and yeah, with your dad, with your mum, with yourself, has it been different with each of you? Um, yeah, it really has been different with each of us. I think my dad was the hardest person, definitely. My dad was the hardest person to forgive in a way because I never thought I would. I never thought I would talk to him again. Um, and I was happy with that. I just thought I had something there, obviously, that was more of like a stumbling block with him. But I was so used to it, it was just my norm. Mm. And when I did speak to him, I was just, it was, it was so weird because I just didn't think that would ever happen. Mm. You know, I did expect him to, to die and, and not to actually have spoken to him at all again because I had so many things there for, about him. So that was, that, was, that was hard. But when that shift happened, it was so instant it was something I could ignore mm. with my mum it was gradual and it was only through like trying to see it from her point of view when she literally when she died I had a bit more of it I had much more of a quick shift there because I was just like okay now I can appreciate how difficult it was for you you know even though she wasn't like able to tell me this mm. I just felt like there was I feel like I needed to have some compassion there because for my mum I was I grew up really like hating her and telling her I hated her and it was it was not great mm. so I feel like even though I acknowledge that there was things that could have happened much better and differently I do still acknowledge that she was human and she did the best that she could with the knowledge and the information she had at the time um, and I got that from Louise Hay Mm -hmm. I really love Louise Hayes books yeah. um she's got a few that are really really good and I think she's got one that you can heal your life I think that's the one I I, I got it from so she always says that people are doing their best with the knowledge and information that they have at the time and then when I can apply that to my mum I mean that was much later that I've got that but when my mum passed away and I, I just got that you know it must have been really really difficult for her mm. it really helped me to I suppose have some more compassion for her than than I than I did before and then it helped me to also and compassion for myself is something that I've been working on definitely it's been an uphill journey <laughs> like it is I think for all of us because it's not something we I think it's something we have, but I don't think it's something that we tap into. I don't think it's something that we, we don't learn at school. We don't learn any of those things, those self-care. And that to me is very self-caring to be mm. compassionate to myself, to hold myself, to talk to myself. Like I am a, you know, a child in a way, like to, to nourish your inner child, mm. that part of you that may have been dismissed and to really like care about yourself and, and say, you know, um, you're doing really well you know, you've got this, you know, just saying these positive words to yourself and acknowledging how far you've come because even with like self-harming, it's not something I always talk about because I always think people don't always want to know because yeah. it's not a nice thing. It's, it's, it was very gory, 
you know, yeah. it was, you know, it wasn't it was quite graphic and gory. Um, and I remember going to the hospital one time and and the hospital staff not reacting very well to it at all. Um, because I cut myself quite a lot. And I think that was one of the days when I was kind of like, okay, you need to stop this now because this this is not this, you're not getting the result you want. You're not getting what you want. This is not really helping you at all. But even just talking about it and, and acknowledging how far I've come with that, I don't always give myself credit. Mm. It was only just now. I was just like, oh, wow, it's been a long time and I'm actually still doing well because I choose not to do that all the time. And I, I've chosen it so for so long that it's not something, it's, it's like even when I've had really, when I've really been down, when I've really had like really difficult times and, relationship breakups you know and I felt like I really needed to go there actually I've not been able to go there because of the choices I kept making they're being consistent every day with not doing that um and forgiving myself I would say definitely just it's, it's an everyday thing but knowing that I did the best that I could at the time yeah. with the knowledge I had and now when I know better I can do better and that's something that I will continue to do. <laughs> and um, just also just, you know, it's okay to make mistakes. It's okay to, to, to you know, to try things, things don't work out. And, you know, you're still learning, you're still growing, you're still developing. Um, and just giving you, yourself that time and, and not continuing to berate myself the way I used to do um because I used to do that a lot particularly when I was firstly qualified as a social worker I would always like have these conversations that would be going that were just negative and just be like oh you should have done this you should have done that blah 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 and then you get families and all sorts of things coming at you as well so it was really like a mishmash of everything and having to really just breathe and stop and and just be aware of that because that dynamic went on for years Mm. um but it was my norm right it was something that I I was used to so I didn't know any different and sometimes I think it takes a while to just like step out of that and say okay what am I going to do now what do I want what do I really really want mm. and let ourselves be daring and and say this is really really what I want I don't want this dynamic anymore I don't want this pattern anymore I don't want this circum circumstance anymore whatever it is and this is what I really really want and letting us go there and see it and and have a vision for ourselves of what we want it to be like so like in the vision of my life I don't see self-harm it's not something that's come that ever kind of crosses my mind as in like oh okay this is something that you know is part of my future I I used to see it as but I don't see it anymore mm. I love that I love that you made some really great comments there with the fact you know it's an everyday thing and and that is life, it's an everyday thing. But also with the more that you know, the more you can do. And again, it's expanding your knowledge. And some people think, oh, I know it all. No one knows it all. You know, it, you can look at anyone that you admire right now and they're still learning. We're all still mm -hmm. learning. No one has got 100% of the information they need mm -hmm. to live the life that they wanna live. It's a learning curve, we're a work in progress and we're evolving all the time. But I love the fact that you're like, the more knowledge that I have, the more I can do, the more I can expand my healing, my happiness, my writing, whatever it may be. And, um, it, you know, it, and it's it's so, so true. And I love your vision. 
I think visuals are so powerful because our mind is such a powerful muscle. It creates our reality. It doesn't know the mm, difference yes. what's real and what's not. And if you can start to really work with your mind in partnership to visualize the outcomes that you want and seeing yourself mm. living the life that you want, you're almost halfway there because it yeah. will then start to open up avenues for you that weren't possible before because um, is it you you get what you're you get what you focus your attention on and so if you're mm. allowing yourself to focus your attention on being free from self-harm and being happy and you know all of that sort of stuff then that is the reality that's going to start to form in front of you yeah. and and you know the first thing that I would always say with people is just spend some time daydreaming mm. what this life that that you know that's beyond this darkness or this shit that you're going through could look like if you yeah. have, with no what ifs buts or maybes not focusing on the how but just that freedom of just dreaming yeah. you do that for five ten minutes every day your mind is really going to start to work with you on creating that you it, i so believe that as well emma because once you what you move what you what you focus your attention on like you said you get the attention back mm. so it's like a reciprocal kind of exchange so what you give out you get back straight away and if you are focusing on your dream, you're focusing on what could be, you know, you're not, you're, okay, there is the, the, the shit, whatever you're going through, but knowing that it's not forever, it's not something that you're going to have to continue with. It's not all, income, you know, all encompassing forever in your life. And it's taken, it took me a long time to see that. And I used to just be in the cycle of depression, suppression, depression, all these different things. And I was just like, oh, no, I don't want this anymore. Mm. You know, I want to move forward. And it is still a learning thing for me because there's so many things I want to do that I never really thought was possible for me. Um, just even the writing, even publishing, what I published, I never thought that was possible. I never really thought about it. I never went there until I went there. Yeah. <laughs> and then it opened up and then I was like, wow, okay okay this is this is this is interesting I didn't think that this was gonna happen for me um because I didn't allow it and I I what I would have said what I would say to people is that please allow your mind to go there even if you think it's ridiculous even if you think it's not gonna happen whatever just let your mind go there and you'll be amazed at where it can take you mm. um and do it sooner rather than later you know as as much as possible you know, dream, that's what we've been given. We've been given our imagination for a very good reason um, to, to imagine things. And apparently, like, animals don't have that kind of imagination. They're all on, like, instinct. And they don't really have those, like, higher faculties, like imagination and reason that we have. Um, so we've been given them for a reason. And so it's, it's really great to, to be able to use it. Without doubt, I was literally about to say, is there anything um, that you would like to finish with? And I think you've just done a right mic drop and it's boom, 100%. And I love that. I absolutely love your your energy. I love your honesty. I love um, the fact you've allowed us into your life and to share your experience. Because I know these things aren't always easy. Um, but it's, you know, and it's often therapeutic when you kind of talk things through. And like you said, you've realized in this moment how far you've come. And it's about celebrating that as well. And I just think, you know, throughout all of this, you've been smiling. 
Thanks. I, I absolutely love that. And I think yeah. it says a lot about you. Um, thank so you. thank you so, so much for, um, for sharing everything that you have today and mm. for allowing me to be in your world and to ask you questions. Thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity, right? Because, you know, it's not something I even thought about before for ages you know being on a podcast anything like that it wasn't something I even thought of so even to be able to have this opportunity for me is is really big so thank you so much to do more of it as well yes yes <laughs> I would like to do that <laughs> yeah definitely put it out there put it out yeah there. Put it out there <laughs> awesome thanks Rebecca it's been amazing and thank you everyone once again for listening this week and I look forward to seeing you all next week so bye for now That's all for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this show, please head over to iTunes, subscribe and leave a review. Bye for now.